Good morning. <laughs> Good, morning. Good morning. I don't know if it's the heat or what, but uh, it feels just a little like we're not quite with it today. I, I hope that's not true. Um, so today is one of those weird Sundays that happens every once in a while to a preacher where uh, the thing that I had written is not the thing that I'm, I'm going to talk about. Um, at least not at, at the beginning. I had this really great opening illustration. It's a story that happened to one of my friends growing up, and it's this, this wonderful, funny, it's one of my favorite stories ever, and I'm not going to tell it to you. Um, don't worry, I'll tell you about it someday. It'll come back around, but um, it, it just struck me as I was sitting with this message this week that I was trying to come into something in a very lighthearted way that is not particularly lighthearted, um, and uh, something that I personally am wrestling with as I wrote and as, um, as I studied and, and as I prayed over the sermon. And so instead of coming in with something funny, I'm just going to come in with a moment of confession and say that this sermon is um, maybe more for me than it is for you. I, I don't know. Um, it's entirely possible. I feel like God is trying to say something to me. And I also want to confess before you this morning that I am a bit of a hypocrite today. Uh, the things that are in this message, the things that God has laid on my heart to say, are things that I wrestle with, um, that I wrestle with doing, uh, that I wrestle with understanding, um, that I wrestle with living out in my own life. So every now and again, a preacher gets one of those sermons that is like that, and today is that for me. So if there is something here for you, um, wonderful. I'm really glad. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but most of what I'm about to say, I think, is probably something that I need to hear. Uh, so with that, <laughs> with that disclaimer in mind, let's go. Um, so there are, there are lies that we just believe. Um, there are lies that are so convincing to us that we believe them without hesitation without thinking about it, without second-guessing them, without pushing back on them. There are lies that are so convincing to us that we don't even realize they are lies. There are lies that are so convincing that we have accepted them as true. And many of those lies revolve around finance, wealth, and poverty. A lot of the things that we have come to believe, especially living in what is a, f a phenomenally affluent society um, about money, wealth, and poverty, even if you don't feel like you're phenomenally affluent, um, many of the things that we have come to believe about finances are just not true. Um, Jesus talks in his Sermon on the Mount uh, about money. Um, in fact, Jesus talks about money more than he talks about nearly anything else in the New Testament. He uses money as illustrations. He uses it as the source of parables. He just flat out talks about it. Um, and he talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things he says about money in the Sermon on the Mount is that uh, money desires to be our master. And he says that we can't serve two masters. We can't serve both God and money. Uh, money wants to have mastery over us. And one of the ways that money does that, one of the ways that, that the economic systems of the world gain mastery over us is by convincing us to believe lies. And so um, just here are some of the ones that I could think of this week. Um, 
here are, here are some of those lies that I have bought, that I have believed from time to time. Um, that we need more than we really do. That we need the next new thing. Um, that we deserve more than we have. That we, that we, uh, and, and paradoxically, that we don't deserve kindness or generosity from other people. A lot of us really wrestle with that. When, when we do receive, we feel a great sense of shame or guilt over that for some reason. Um, that uh, one of the lies that we believe is that our generosity will be abused by those we are generous to. I'm, I'm not sure it's possible to abuse generosity. Generosity is, is gift-giving. Once it's given, uh, it's out of our hands what happens to it. But we believe that, that generosity will be abused, and it prevents us from being generous. We, we believe the lie that, that those who wrestle with poverty or those who wrestle with homelessness are that way because of bad choices that they have made or because they are bad individuals in some way. Uh, we wrestle with the lie that capitalism is good or that socialism is bad or that some other ism is better or worse than any other ism. They're all isms. They've all got their ups and downs. We wrestle with the lie, or I wrestle with the lie at least, that entrepreneurs are successful primarily because of their hard work and that if I work hard enough, I can be rich like them. I wrestle with the lie that anybody could be fabulously wealthy. I wrestle with the lie that there isn't enough to go around. I wrestle with the lie that I can't make a difference in my world. We wrestle with the lie, uh, the great American lie, of being able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We wrestle with lies that Christianity can't or isn't supposed to end poverty or that the government can't or isn't supposed to end poverty, and I'm left to wonder who is supposed to help try to end poverty if nobody can. One of the lies that I wrestle with very deeply is that if I were more wealthy than I am today, I would use that for good. I know that's a lie because I already have some amount of wealth and I use it primarily for me. We wrestle with the lie that the Bible's teachings on wealth and finance and poverty are, are metaphorical and not literal. The economic systems of our world have depended and do depend on these and other lies. But God has an economy revealed in the Scriptures that is remarkably different and does not depend upon lies. I don't know if you think about this very often. I don't think about this very often. That is another trick of the system uh, in which we live. But the Bible does outline a different kind of economy. It outlines a different way of looking at and interacting with wealth and finance and poverty. The Old Testament and the New Testament, both individually and jointly, 
point toward a kingdom-centered economy that God's people are called to embrace whenever and wherever we can. This kingdom-centered economy does not run on the desire for more. It does not run on the compulsion to consume. It does not run on the idea of hoarding resources, nor does it run on the idea of belittling others, whether they are more or less wealthy than we are. Instead, the economy of God's kingdom runs on things like forgiving debt, loaning without interest, sharing generously, living according to our basic daily needs, blessing those who do not have, and working to provide not just for ourselves but for others as well. These are some of the base tenets of God's economy. This week's lectionary reading uh, focuses on God's economy. It's in Isaiah 55, and it got me thinking about all of this. Isaiah is to blame, as Isaiah very often is in my life, for pointing out things that I need to pay attention to. And so I want to take you with me to today's lectionary reading in Isaiah 55 uh, for a few minutes to see what we might see about God's economy, to learn what we might be able to learn about wealth and poverty and finance uh, from the prophet. Here's what is written in Isaiah 55. It's the first five verses of the chapter. It says this, Here, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your earnings for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, and now you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that you, I'm sorry, nations that do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. This passage constitutes um, the, the end portion of what we know as Deutero-Isaiah. Isaiah is kind of chopped up into three big sections, um, and the second of those big sections is Isaiah 40 through 55. And so this is right at the end of the second big section. It's part of a longer celebration through chapter 54 and the rest of 55 of forgiveness. Um, God's people have been in exile. God's people have been forsaken. God's people have been chastised. God's people have been punished for their wickedness. And then God says, but I won't stay mad at you forever. I can't stay mad at you forever. I love you too much. And so there is forgiveness and there is wholeness and there is restitution and I'm going to make everything new and I'm going to make everything better. You're going to come back to the place that is your place, the land that is your land. You're going to live there and not only are you going to live there, but you're going to live there 
there in plenty. You're going to live there in delight. You're going to live there in joy. You're going to live there in hope. You're going to live there in peace. And this is what's happening in Isaiah 54 and 55. And part of that is this passage right here, these five verses that talk about coming and buying without price. The rest of Isaiah 55, um, as I, I read it, I read these, these five verses, and then I um, went back and read the chapter before, and then I went forward and read the rest of the chapter, which is what you're supposed to do in order to make sense out of what you're reading. Um, it's remarkable when you read what comes before and after. It just it changes what you're reading. Um, and so I, I read the rest of Isaiah 55, and I was really surprised. I knew almost every other verse of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 says some remarkably familiar things, at least familiar things to me. Uh, maybe you have heard some of these things as well. The rest of Isaiah 55 talks about going forth with joy and singing. It talks about the trees of the field clapping their hands. It talks about seeking the Lord while he may be found. It talks about God's word going out and not returning empty. It talks about God's ways being higher than our ways and his thoughts being higher than our thoughts. Have you ever heard any of those kind of things before? They're all in Isaiah 55. I was familiar with all of them. And what really troubled me is that I was familiar with verses 6 through 13, that's the rest of the chapter, but for some reason I was completely unfamiliar with these first five verses. I've read the Bible cover to cover, and I don't remember these verses. Now, to be fair, there are a lot of verses in the Bible I don't remember. This just happens to be five of them. But I'm guessing that I don't remember them because nobody ever really made a big deal out of them in my life. People made a big deal about rejoicing and the trees clapping. We sing songs. There's a children's song about that. People made a big deal about God's ways being higher than our ways and his thoughts being higher than my thoughts. They told me that. They told me that when God's word proceeds forth, it does not return empty. I remember people hearing that. Uh, they've taught me to seek the Lord while he may be found. I, I've been told that in sermons and Sunday school lessons and podcasts and so on and so forth. But I don't remember anybody preaching to me that I could come and buy and eat and for no cost. Somehow I haven't heard that sermon often in my life. And I wonder if it's because God's economy makes us radically uncomfortable, because it is so different from our economy, and because we have bought into so many of the lies about wealth and poverty. Verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 55, they strike me honestly in that regard as, as kind of dangerous verses. They're verses that ask us, what if things were different than they are? What if we believed that we could live in a different way? What if God has something for us, not just something down the road in the future, which is how we tend to think about these kind of things, but what if God has something different for us today? And so I've been wrestling with that over the last couple of weeks. What if God has something different for me? What if I am supposed to interact with money in a different way? What if I am supposed to think about wealth and poverty differently than I do? 
What if there is a different economy that I am supposed to latch on to? There is a call in these verses to a different way of thinking and a different way of living. There's a call here that says that everyone can come. There is enough for everyone. That is radically out of step with the way that we tend to think about economy. We believe that there's maybe enough for me if I work hard, but enough for everyone? I don't know about that. If there's enough for everyone, that probably means I have to give stuff up, and I don't know about that either. Well, maybe if some of those uber-wealthy people gave their stuff up, well, then there'd be, well, there'd definitely be enough for me at that point, and maybe still some other people too. I don't know. People have done this. They've done the math on this, that like if, if the world's richest people each gave everyone living on the globe $1 million, then the richest people in the world would still be the richest people in the world. They've done the math on this. This is, this is kind of how we tend to think about economy. How can I get what they have? And yet God says, hey, I've got something for you that everyone can come and have. Everyone is welcome to come here. Anyone who thirsts, God says, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you find yourselves in want, you can come to me and I can help provide for that want. Come, all who are thirsty. This, this uh, line that begins, Isaiah 55, come, you who thirst, uh, is repeated and reflected again at the end of the Bible, in the very last chapter of Scripture in Revelation, that the Spirit and the bride say, come, anyone who is thirsty, and drink from the waters of life. This is not just a one-off in Isaiah. The invitation pops up again and again. Jesus actually says it in the Gospels. He stands up during one of the Jewish festivals and says, hey, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. I have rivers of life for you. The Bible again and again invites people to come, whoever you are, wherever you are. And here in Isaiah 55, it seems that God is especially inviting those who do not normally get the invitation. Right? Let's go back and look at that just for a second, the, the, the beginning of Isaiah 55. Drew, can you put that back up on the screen? He says, um, here, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. God specifically extends an invitation to those who do not normally receive the invitation. The normal invitation of our economic system is come you who have money and purchase the thing I have for you, right? This is, this is what every piece of advertising on the planet says. Come you who have money, give it to us and we will give you our thing that you can't live without. God says something radically different. He says, come you who have nothing. Come you who have nothing. I am reminded of Jesus teaching that the last get to be first and that the, the first end up going to the end of the line. God's economy is an upside-down economy. 
Come and buy wine and milk without price. Um, that translation is a little bit deceiving. It's not without price. It's something like, more like, um, come and buy it for a song, for something that isn't money is really what the translation is. Come and buy it for something that isn't money. Your money is no good here, is what God is saying. All I really want is you. You come. Leave your money at home. Just bring yourself, and you will have your fill. Even those who can't afford it, the poor are elevated, and not just for scraps, but for the best, for wine and milk. There are, there are four or five things that the Old Testament uses to, to show us that something is the best. Wine, milk, honey, bread, and fat. Those are the five things that the Bible really, if it wants to tell us that something is good, it uses one of those words. Four out of those five show up in these verses, by the way. Bread, wine, uh, bread milk, wine, and fat all show up in these verses in some way, shape, or form. Um, some you have to dig into the Hebrew to see them. But four out of the five are here. There's not just scraps for you, there's good for you. You don't get the leftovers, you get the best. That is different from our economy. In my economic model, I give me the best. I give other people my leftovers. Other people are not my first thought when it comes to how I spend my money. I am my first thought when it comes to how I spend my money. God's economy runs differently than that. And so not only is this a call to a different way to think about economy, but it is a call to reorder our own priorities, I think. I think we find in these verses a call to reshape how we think about economics, but also a call to reshape how we live out our economic policies in our life. God says, why are you spending money on things that cannot satisfy you? I have sat with that verse for two weeks. That verse hits me. It guts me. That verse has been stabbing me in the heart for two weeks because I have bought things that do not satisfy. And as soon as I learn it doesn't satisfy, you know what I do? I go out and I buy another thing that does not satisfy. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? My house is filled with trinkets. My house is filled with things I've collected. My house is filled with, with books I'm not going to read and DVDs I'm not going to watch again. There are clothes that I never wear hanging in my closet, and yet I keep going to buy more. And God asks, why are you spending on that which will not satisfy? I really needed to hear that over these last couple of weeks. I'm really wrestling with what that means for my spending and for my economic priorities going forward. We have so much stuff, more than we need, and our priority can't be to seek our own self-satisfaction anymore. Instead, we seek God and find real life. This is, this is what the verse ends, uh, what's on the screen right now, the, the middle of verse 3 says, incline your ear and come to me, listen so that you may 
live. And it's really easy for us to spiritualize this and, 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 and kind of take the real-world economics out of this and say, oh, God's talking about coming and buying uh, hope or grace or peace or something spiritual. And, and in some translations of the Bible, um, this actually says that you might find life for your soul, making it even more spiritual. I'm really glad that the NRSV drops that word and says just that you may find life. In the Hebrew, the word there is that you might find wholeness for your being. That's what God says you can find in his economic model. If we will stop prioritizing ourself, we can find wholeness for our being. And so we need to rethink our economic priorities, and that message is all over the New Testament. Jesus runs into people all the time, and an encounter with the living God reshapes their economic reality. I'm thinking about Zacchaeus, whose whole life had been about what he could accumulate for himself. He runs into Jesus and says, from now on, things are going to be different. I'm going to give away my wealth. I'm going to return that which I'm stolen. I'm going to give people back four times over what I took. That's not a one-off. This kind of thing happens again and again and again. Sometimes, like Zacchaeus, people uh, reorder their economic priorities in a positive way. Sometimes it doesn't work the same way. I'm thinking of the, the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit life, right? Come to me so that you might find life. And Jesus says, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. And the guy walks away sad because he has so much stuff and he doesn't want to lose it. Are we willing to reorder our economic priorities? Are we going to be Zacchaeus or are we going to be the rich man? Paul talks about this in his writings. He writes to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy at the end of the, the book in chapter 6. He says, to the, remind those who are wealthy, who, are, who have resources among you, not to put their hope in those resources, but instead to place their hope in God and to use those resources to bless other people. I think about the early church in Acts. The first few chapters of Acts are, are just mind-boggling. They're almost like fairy tale chapters because they're so hard for us to imagine people actually doing these things where they take what they have, they sell it, and they give the money to whoever needs it, no questions asked. I don't know, I've, I've worked in the church a long time, and I've been part of the church my entire life. I can count on one hand, and I don't need all the fingers, the times where someone has come into the church and said, I have sold my property, I am giving it to the church, uh, do with it whatever you want to. Bless other people. It just doesn't happen, but it happened in Acts Acts says that they held everything in common and there were no needy persons among them. That's a different kind of economic thinking. There's an invitation in Scripture to redo our thinking, to redo our priorities, to redo the way that we behave. And we don't because we look at these things in the Bible and we say, oh, that's a great lesson about well, it can't be about actual money, that's for sure. But it's a wonderful metaphor, Jesus. There's that lie, right? There's that economic system trying to creep in and prevent me from living God's way. There's a call here to be different. And at the heart of it is a call to think about others first, I think. 
at the heart of this is a call to prioritize other people. Because this truth in Isaiah is not just for me. Drew, would you go to the next slide? There is, uh, sorry, the, the second slide of the Isaiah passage. There is language here in this slide um, at the end in verse 5 that says that other nations, other peoples are going to come to you. Peoples that you don't even know are going to come and be blessed because God has glorified you. There is a mentality at work in this passage that it is not just about me, that other people are impacted when I choose to live in kingdom ways. And it's very easy to believe that what I do with my money only affects me. And it's not true. What we do with our money has far-reaching consequences. I love Kit Kat bars. They are my favorite candy. Uh, it is hard to pass by a Kit Kat bar and not pick it up, all right? Uh, doesn't matter if it's the birthday cake flavored one, the churro flavored one, the regular flavored one, the dark chocolate flavored one, not the white chocolate flavored one, that one's gross. <laughs> but if it's a Kit Kat bar, I, I am in love with it, all right? A few years ago, I discovered that Kit Kat is owned by Nestle, and the Nestle Corporation engages really, really regularly in child slave labor in other countries in the world. What do you do with that? What do you do with the information that the money that you're spending adversely affects people in faraway places? Well, you think to yourself, it's 89 cents. How big of a deal could it be? And you buy a Kit Kat bar. Now I think it's $1.29. I'm not sure. Inflation. But this is, this is how we rationalize, right? I, what I do couldn't possibly affect somebody else. And so we buy our things knowing that there are people suffering in the world because we buy our things. We have to rethink that. You know what? Maybe... Maybe me not buying Kit Kat bars, maybe it won't change the whole world. But it will change me. And maybe it will change one other life. Maybe two. And isn't that something? And what if we all began to do that? How many lives could we change? if we reshaped our economic priorities to put other people before ourselves. This is the work of Jesus. This is the work of Jesus to say, I'm going to live according to a different economic model. I'm going to reorient my priorities. I'm going to place other people first. In fact, in Jesus' very first sermon in the Gospel of Luke, um, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, not this passage, but a different one. And here's what he says in uh, Luke chapter 4. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the who? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's favor, by the way, is an Old Testament concept called Jubilee. Every 50 years, anyone who had debt 
it was supposed to be forgiven. Anyone who had had to sell their ancestral land, it was supposed to be returned. That is a radically different kind of economy. Jesus, in his very first sermon, says, if it's not good news for the poor, if it's not good news for the oppressed, if it's not good news for those who have lost everything, it's not very good news. That's the work of Jesus. So how do we participate in that work? Well, as it turns out, another lectionary passage for this week has the answer. Funny how that works. This is the gospel lectionary passage for this week. It's Matthew chapter 14, and it's super familiar. It's the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, and this is what happens. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them uh, and cured their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Check the economic understanding, right? We don't want these people to starve. That would not be good. The fix for that is that they take care of themselves away from us. Send them away. Let them go buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, they need not go away. And here it is. You give them something to eat. Can you imagine being a disciple and hearing that with a crowd of several thousand people there? It would incite some panic, and it does here because this is what they say. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. Well, then it's not nothing, guys. But this is our mentality, right? I, don't, I can't do that. I don't have anything to give. I only have the stuff for me. And Jesus said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed them, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate, and all were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. You give it to them, Jesus says. You give it to them. And what's amazing about the economy of Jesus is that when we will trust Jesus with that command, he will do really strange and amazing things. What we will find is that we will have enough to share, enough to give, and enough left over for ourselves. That we will be able to be more generous than we thought that we were capable that our resources can go farther than we expected. That God will still care for us as we are caring for other people. And the economy of this world says that that's not true. And so we have to choose which economy we will align ourselves with. You give them something. How will you do that? That's up to you. What do you have? Where can you do the most good? Will you try? Will you take it to Jesus and see if he will be faithful to multiply it, to use it to care for others and still care for you? What if we did that? 
What if we decided to live according to this kingdom economy and it's so hard and I reiterate, I am a massive hypocrite as I preach this because I wrestle and don't do these things very well. I know that I should. I just don't. So I'm going to ask you, as a community, would you help hold me accountable to living better by the economy of heaven? Now, not someday, but now. And if you're willing, I'll help do the same for you. What if we did that? Would we discover that God now, just like then, will multiply what we have? Will we discover that there's a better way of living? That all who are thirsty can come. That all who are hungry can come. That all who are weary can come and be satisfied. We want to move into our time of communion. The time of communion models this idea for us that a little bit goes a long way. We come to the table again and again and again, and we take our bit of bread and we take our cup of juice, and what we discover is that these very small things have massive impact in our soul and in our heart. Because God can take small things and multiply them. We come to the table again and again and again, week after week after week, and we're reminded of the economy of heaven that we didn't set the table. It's provided for us. We come to the table again and again and again, and we're reminded that God has an entirely different economic model where we cannot buy God's grace or goodness for ourselves no matter what not with all of our wealth, not with all of our activity, not with all of our goodness, not with all of our holiness. We cannot do it. We come to the table week after week after week, poor and hungry and needy for the things of God, and we simply receive it and are filled. So this morning, I invite you to the table. To be honest, it's not even my invitation. Jesus invites you to the table to come and to be satisfied. As we get ready to do that, as we do uh, week after week, we acknowledge that we are not who we need to be yet, that we are still works in progress, that there is still more for us to learn and more for us to do. So if you are willing and if you are able, would you please stand with me in preparation for our time at the table as we come and confess together before the Lord. Would you join me?